All right, today I am continuing a series that we are doing on the titles given to the Messiah by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, verse 6. So that's for the weeks of Advent, we're looking at those different titles. And last week we began with Wonderful Counselor. Today we move on to look at Mighty God and what that means for Isaiah as he talks about those things. And I, I began this last week by mentioning that is a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that quite often we see during Advent, right? Uh, it's on Christmas cards or on wall hangings or decorations and those things that come out. That, that verse from Isaiah that, that tells us about that. For, us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And last week we began by looking at, so what does Isaiah have in mind when he talks about Wonderful Counselor? What does that mean that we have a Messiah who is a wonderful counselor? Today, we move on to the next one. What does Isaiah mean when he says that our, our, our Messiah is a mighty God and what that looks like? And last week, uh, if you were here last week, you know, that word counselor just carried so much extra meaning in the Hebrew language that we had to unpack and go through. That's really not the case today because the Hebrew term for mighty God, Gibor El, pretty much means in Hebrew what we say it is in English, a mighty God. But that doesn't mean that Isaiah doesn't have something very specific and particular in mind when he uses that title. And I want us to consider that today. What does Isaiah mean by that? And for that, we're going to turn to another part of Isaiah to find something around that. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 40. So I'll read a few verses from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40 with a consideration of what Isaiah means by the title, Mighty God for the Messiah. Here's what it says in Isaiah 40. I'm starting at verse 3. A voice of one calling... In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. 
Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, something then about mighty God and what that looks like from Isaiah's perspective here. Now, for this one, I I think what I want to do is I want to give us maybe the backup and give us a larger view. Because I read a passage that comes from Isaiah 40, and I mean, 40 chapters in is quite a ways in. It's worth noting to find out what this passage really means to take a moment and consider where this falls in the book of Isaiah and how that message really plays across by its placement of exactly where it is. Okay, so here's just the the quick overview of Isaiah as a whole so that you know where these words fall and how the people who would have heard them would have understood this as a message from Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah is a book that can be broken into, well, four, maybe five sections, depending on how you choose your sections, right? The first five chapters are something of an introduction. So it's all an introduction for Isaiah. Then chapter 6 is the one where, all right, maybe it stands by itself, maybe it doesn't. Chapter 6 is where Isaiah receives his commissioning from God. And he has that vision of standing before the Lord. And and the Lord says, whom shall we send? And Isaiah says, send me. Right, That's chapter 6, the commissioning. Then chapters 7 through 39 are a section, and that's a big section. All the way from 7, all the way through 39, all of it, one section of Isaiah, and and a lot of it is prophecy that is judgment. Judgment against Israel, judgment against Judah, judgment against Jerusalem. And then it expands, judgment against all the surrounding nations, and they're named in that. Now, it's not all judgment that way. After all, there, there are some glimpses of hope that peek through that. And we've seen some of that because this verse that we're basing our series on comes out of chapter 9. So it's, it's tucked in the middle of that. And last week when we talked about wonderful counselor, we looked at a chapter of Isaiah that comes out of this. So there are these little glimpses that come through there of, but, but God is still one who can save. God is still one who can send a Messiah. But for the most part, consider that this long section of chapters 7 through 39, it's not very good news for the people of God. It's the prophecy of the coming Babylonian exile, that Babylon is going to come and they're going to level Jerusalem, level Zion. And Whoever isn't killed in this onslaught is going to be taken into exile to Babylon. Babylon. Babylon is a country that, for all purposes for them, is on the whole other side of the world. It might as well be. 
It is so far away. And that's what this long section of chapters brings as a message from Isaiah to the people. Chapter 40 turns the corner. Chapter 40, and it goes 40 through 55 then, are the response to that, that God brings. And then 56 to the end is the final section. But what I want us to see in that is what we read here today. What we read in Isaiah 40 is the very front end of a whole new section where Isaiah is going to now say something in response to all those chapters about the judgment, the exile, the separation of God and his people from the land that they lived in. All of that going through their heads. It's worth noting because I, I think for these words to make a little better sense to us, that we need something in our head about what's happening prior to that. That maybe we read these words of Isaiah 40, and, and maybe you think in your mind, maybe like the, um, some of it's used as the text for Handel's Messiah, that you think Christmas songs that come around with that, or it's that Advent kind of prediction, or, or this is a passage that so often, and we'll get to that, points towards something in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But before we do that, before we get there, let's take a moment and do our best and put yourself into the mind of the people who would originally have heard this message from Isaiah. And at this point, through chapter 39 anyway, the message from Isaiah would have felt us feeling a certain way, I think. A certain way where, in the context of that people in that time, this might have felt rather hopeless. Rather hopeless in the sense of, so this is what's coming? Our beloved city, Jerusalem, destroyed, and whoever happens to survive that is taken to Babylon. Way on the other side of the world. So they thought, so they felt. Right, now, let's remember it then too. There's no airplanes, there's no air travel that happens here yet. There's not a train line that connects this. There's not transit systems. So Babylon, compared to where Jerusalem was, the land of Judah, you either had to cross a scorching desert that you could not cross because there's no water out there and there's no way to take enough water and carry it along with you to survive that journey, to go across it. You can't go that way. Or the other route, you have to go through mountains. And I, we live here in the Midwest. We don't have an idea of what that's like. There aren't mountains like that around here. And, and don't think like Rocky Mountains either, these really, really tall things. It's the kind of mountains where you find these deep canyons with cliffs and walls and there is no way to get over it. There's no way to get around it. So unless you know the exact route that you have to travel through and have guides that take you and run through that, there's no way to get across this terrain. That's what's happening here in the mind of the Israelites. So what you're saying is, we're going to be on the other side of the world in Babylon, separated by a terrain that cannot be crossed. There's no way to get from here to there. It just doesn't exist. 
It doesn't happen. Here's what else would have been going on in the mind of these Israelites who are hearing this. Because they see everything here as a battle between the gods. Their God, Yahweh, the Lord. And then the pagan gods of the other nations. Babylon had its pagan gods too. And what Isaiah is prophesying here is interpreted to them by, so what you're telling us is, the Lord is going to lose. That's what it sounds like. That the gods of Babylon are going to win this one. And then we're taken to a place where we have no hope. And our God, the Lord, has lost and abandoned us. When you get through chapter 39, that's what you're left with. All right? That's what's in the mind of the people who are hearing this. It sounds like our God loses and we're abandoned and we're way on the other side of the world and there's no way to get from here to there. How is there hope in this? And then chapter 40. What does chapter 40 bring then? You think you're on the other side of the world. You think you're in this place where the scorching desert and the cliffs and the canyons and the mountains separate you in a terrain that you'll never, ever get back across. So when Isaiah turns the corner, he talks about that. He says, let me tell you where your hope's going to come from. Let me tell you something about the Messiah that God is going to bring. This is a Messiah who's going to take that scorching desert and make it a smooth path. This is a Messiah who's going to take all those mountains and canyons and hills that you can't get over, that you can't get around, and level those things down. This is a God who's going to make a way where you think there's no way. That's what Isaiah is trying to bring to his people here for who this Messiah is. Coming into a world where we have some of our expected patterns of what making a way looks like. Some of our expected patterns of how we can fix things, how we can solve problems, how we can find our own way forward. That's the world we live in, right? It's a world where we try to find our own way to make things the next step, to bring ourselves to that next place of accomplishment. Isaiah is saying to God's people here, you know what, what you've got to realize, what you've got to realize that sometimes in some places there is no fix you can make. There is no way forward that you can find, that you can do. And in those times when it looks hopeless because there's a desert that just cannot be crossed, there's a mountain you just can't get over or around, that's where Isaiah says, but this Messiah, this Messiah can do what none of us can. This this Messiah can make a way where there is no other way. You see where these words of Isaiah in in chapter 40 are, are pushing new boundaries now then. How these people would have heard this and responded to this and found a way to listen to what's happening. The message that Isaiah is giving them here. 
God himself will make a way of salvation for his people where there appears to be no way for salvation to happen. God himself will do that. And it's going to show up in places where you think there's no way. There's no way it could happen that way. There's no way salvation can come like that. Be ready for the unexpected. Because God can do it. His Messiah can do that. Then he goes on to talk about that. What that looks like. How the Messiah will do this. Verses 10 and 11. And these verses are the ones that then capture into a little something of what Isaiah has in mind by a God who is mighty. The might, the strength, the power of the Lord. That's what he says in verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Here's a description then. A description that Isaiah is giving to, you want to know what the Messiah who is a mighty God looks like? Here's something of that description. But what, is, what does Isaiah mean by this? Right? What pictures come in mind? Especially if you just start with verse 10 and take a look at verse 10. Because when we think about maybe the title itself, Mighty God, we look at the words there in verse 10 that accompany that power, right? Sovereign, that he is a God of strength. I don't know what pictures come in your mind, right? Maybe I think, yeah, this time of year. I think of maybe like a, a football line where it's a line and it's 300-pound guys and it's like the kind of 300 pounds that's all muscle, one of that. And, and unless the other team has a line like that as well, it's a mismatch, isn't it? Because a line where if you happen to have a football team with a front line of 300-pound all-muscle guys, they can push around and pretty much do anything they want on the field if they're not evenly matched coming the other way. Maybe that's what we think of as might, strength, power. Or in military terms, right? A, an army that has warships and bombers and missiles. If they were to go up against a force that the only things they had were clubs and rocks, there's no question of who's going to win in that kind of a battle. Because all the strength, all the power the might is just with one side. Is that what Isaiah is talking about? Is that what the might of God looks like? A force that is so powerful that nothing can stand up against it in that way. Take a look at what verse 10 looks like in, in another English translation. This comes from the New English translation of the Bible. Here's how it puts verse 10. Look, the Sovereign Lord comes as a victorious warrior. 
His military power establishes his rule. Look, his reward is with him. His prize goes before him. Right? Spoils of war that he gains. Is that what comes to mind when we think about a mighty God? Strength, power. For the record, I'm not really fond of the New English translation wording of this. And um, if that happens to be your Bible of choice, I'm not saying about the entire Bible of that. It's, it's just this verse in particular. that I don't know that they got that right. Because in the original Hebrew, there's nothing there about victory. There's nothing in there about warriors. And there's nothing in there about military. None of that is in the Hebrew language that Isaiah wrote this in. But the translators pressed some kind of interpretation into it, didn't they? They thought in their minds, what is Isaiah trying to say? I think Isaiah is trying to say this. Warrior, military, victory, spoils of war, plunder that he gains. You get the sense that that's been pressed as an interpretation into at least this particular translation of it. And maybe for many of us, that connects. Yes, that's what we think of when we think of a God who is mighty. It's the God who's going to win the battle, be victorious in that way, where it's just power that comes in God like that. But is that what Isaiah means? Is that what Isaiah has in mind when he's talking about the sovereign Lord with a mighty arm? Because if it is, then verse 11 becomes a little bit of a head-scratcher of, wait a minute, now what is Isaiah talking about? Because that goes in a whole different direction, doesn't it? Something of... I little more into the Hebrew here then, right? Reward. That when Isaiah talks about the reward that comes with God, it's, it's a word, it's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that more often in other places shows up as either wages or hiring agreement. So the, the wages is really the better term for reward. And then, then there's this word recompense. That's a word we don't use much in English anyway, right? We usually, in English, we usually think of that as maybe compensation kind of a thing. The other translation I looked at here said it was prize. But of all the times that word shows up in the Hebrew Old Testament, most often it refers to work or labor. These are economic terms. They're not battle terms. It's not about plunder or spoils of war, but, but it's economic in the sense of being wages and labor and work. That getting into the meaning here then, what does Isaiah have in mind? What does Isaiah have in mind when he's thinking about a Messiah who is a mighty God? Well, part of that then pushes in the direction of this is a Messiah who the wages of the Messiah's labor and work are what will accompany him. That what the Messiah earns gains, wins. That comes with what the Messiah does. 
with the Messiah's actions, how the Messiah brings that about. Press it into verse 11 then to see what this strength and power looks like. And in verse 11, it's a mighty God who has a mighty arm, and it's a mighty arm that, what? Gathers his lambs. Not crushes his foes in some military battle, but the might of God as the Messiah is displayed shows up by an arm that is strong enough, mighty enough, to gather in his flock, his lambs. His sovereign power then is a sovereign power that carries his flock close to his heart. You see a different idea that's happening here then. That this mighty God is a God who shows up with a might that is about mercy, forgiveness, grace, but it holds power. It's a grace and a mercy and a forgiveness that has strength. It is a grace and a mercy and a forgiveness that has a strong arm and doesn't let go. That Isaiah's message here is still that same message, right? The message he brings to his people. God himself makes a way of salvation for his people, even when there appears to be no way for salvation to happen. That's the message he's bringing. And it's not by an overwhelming force of military strength and power, but the way that God makes salvation comes through the way he shepherds and gathers and carries and holds his people. That's the way of salvation that opens for them. Bring it up to the New Testament that this is one of those passages that often is reframed in the Gospels. That it has a prophecy in mind that becomes fulfilled in the New Testament. That voice that cries out in the wilderness, often we equate to being John the Baptist. That is the voice that cries out. John the Baptist is the one who says, prepare the way for God's salvation. Preparing the people for Jesus. Jesus, the one who brings the salvation of God. Jesus who comes not as a warrior, right? Not as some victorious tyrant who smashes all of his foes out of the way, but Jesus who comes as a servant. Jesus who comes to serve and to give himself for others. And what does Jesus do by giving himself like that? Jesus addresses the separation we have from God. Jesus comes to a place where he recognizes, you know what, let's be honest, even on my best day, even on my very best day, I mess up something. Something goes wrong. And on my worst day, a lot goes wrong. I can't cross that desert desert 
of my own sin. I can't do it. I can't climb over that mountain of all my own brokenness. I can't do it. It can't be done. I'm on the whole other side of the world from where God is and would like for me to be. And there is no way I can get from here to there. I can't do it. None of us can do that. That's where the Messiah shows up. That's where Jesus comes in says, you know what, you're right. You can't do that. But Jesus can. Jesus can take all the sin that weighs on me. He can take that. Take all the sin that weighs on you. Jesus can take that. And he takes it to the cross as a servant, as one who humbles himself, as one who sacrifices. And when Jesus does that, the desert becomes a highway. That mountain that separates us from God is made smooth. Now a way is open. Now a way is there. And only God can do that. God himself makes a way for salvation. When there appears to be no other way salvation can happen. No way I can find it on my own. God does it. God makes that open. Totally unexpected. The way that comes around. That's what Isaiah's picture is. That's what it means for us. And that's what carries us into a place of recognizing today. You know what? Wherever there seems to be that desert that just can't get around, that desert that you think, God could never save someone like me. Yes, he can. And yes, he did. Wherever it looks like there's that, that mountain that you can't cross, right? I could never be the person God wants me to be. I could never be someone who God would say, look, this one belongs to me. But yes, he does. That's what he did. Jesus makes that possible. For those of us who maybe you've got friends or family and it looks like these people that you love so much are so far away from God and you think, I don't know what it would take. It seems like they are so far away from God and it would take a miracle. How can God ever reach them? That's what the Messiah does. He reaches people who otherwise seem unreachable. Or maybe for some of us sitting here in this room who wonder that, who question that. Is God really there? Does God care? Does God love? How can God connect with someone like me? That's what the Messiah does. Makes those connections where it looks like no other way is possible. But that's what makes him a mighty God. That's what brings him to us, the God who saves us. That's why we give him the title, he shall be called Mighty God, the God who makes a way where no other way looks possible, but God can do that. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word, for the reminder of who you are, the mighty God 
the one who comes to us and makes a way where it looks like there is no other way. God, we have to confess before you that we are people who really like to try to find our own way. And we try to fix things ourselves, and we try to figure it all out. And Lord, we also have to acknowledge, you know what, there's moments where we recognize we can't do this ourselves. We can't do it on our own. So God, may we be reassured once again that you are the one who can. You are the one who does. And may we find peace in that. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.